This is the Lesbian Historic Motif Podcast, brought to you by Heather Rose Jones. The show looks at lesbian and sapphic themes in history and literature, and historical fiction with queer female characters, including fantastic versions of the past. We present research, interviews, news of the field, book listings, and original historical fiction for your enjoyment. For even more historic research, check out our blog, perhaps an odd coincidence that there are two prominent actors of the English-speaking stage named Charlotte, whose lives are of interest to the topic of queer history. You've probably heard me go on at length about 19th century American actor Charlotte Cushman and the complex community of feminists, performers, and sculptors that she was enmeshed in and supported. But today I want to talk about another Charlotte on the stage, 18th century English actor Charlotte Chark. I think we can say with confidence that Charlotte Chark was queer, but it's less possible to sort out with any certainty how to describe her gender and sexuality. Charlotte Chark's life and career raises issues of the multiple functions that cross-dressing had in the 18th century and the ways it was interpreted by its various audiences. We see the ways that gender presentation interact with economic factors and the fluidity with which some people moved within the gender spectrum. And we see how difficult it is to try to apply modern sexuality categories in a context where people engage with gender identity in different ways than we're used to. Finally, there is the challenge of interpreting the evidence, even first-person evidence, in a context where candid truth was a ways down the list of functions that the narrative was meant to fulfill. Chark left us with an autobiography that, while written for public consumption and therefore of questionable reliability, offers some evidence for what we might consider today a transmasculine identity. But Shark also begins by stating that her narrative is the product of a female pen. On that basis, I'm going to feel free to identify Shark with female pronouns in this podcast by default, while using male pronouns in context when Shark is choosing a masculine presentation. In so doing, I'm not committing to any particular interpretation, but rather emphasizing the complexities of identification. My alternation in reference is not meant to confuse or to misrepresent, but to acknowledge not only the ambiguity of the evidence, but the potential fluidity of Chark's identity. Charlotte Chark was born in 1713, the twelfth and last child of actor-playwright Cully Sibber and his wife, actress and musician Catherine Shore. As was not unusual in that era, Most of her siblings had died in infancy, and Charlotte came along fairly late at a time when her mother had hoped to be done with children. From a combination of factors, she was left much to her own devices as a child, and in addition to a rather classical education at a girls' school, she was attracted to male-coded hobbies and activities such as shooting, horse racing, science, gardening, and medicine. But the family as a whole revolved around the theater, and it was perhaps inevitable that she would enter the family business. Her father, Colley Sibber, was the manager of the Drury Lane Theatre, a prolific writer and adapter of plays, and best known for his comic parts. In the later part of his life, he was named Poet Laureate of the United Kingdom, somewhat to the dismay and ridicule of contemporary poets such as Alexander Pope and Ambrose Phillips, who felt it was a political appointment. The social politics of the theatre community of the time were prominent influences in Charlotte's life. 
Charlotte's marriage at age 16 to musician Richard Chark was short-lived due to Charlotte's conclusion that Richard was far more interested in being Sibber's son-in-law than her husband. But marriage gave Charlotte entrance to an acting career, something less acceptable for an unmarried woman. Her stage career was briefly interrupted by pregnancy and the birth of her daughter Catherine within the first year of her marriage. When she returned to the stage, Charlotte began specializing largely, though not exclusively, in breeches roles, male parts played by a woman. While the English theater of the 16th and early 17th centuries was characterized by the female roles being played by young men, later in the 17th century it became acceptable for women to appear on stage to play female roles, and men cross-dressing to play female roles fell out of favor except as broad comedy. But the pendulum kept swinging, and by the early 18th century, it was common for women to cross-dress to play male roles. Well, part of the appeal was the erotic attraction for male audiences of seeing a female performer's limbs revealed in male clothing. The dynamics were more complicated than that. As hinted at in Shark's writings and in the general reception of breeches roles, Female audiences were also open to enjoying the erotic delights of appreciating the female form within the socially licensed context of a male role. In the mid-18th century, a writer noted male and female audience members might debate over whether a particular performer was the finest woman or the prettiest fellow. As we'll see, this dynamic played out for Chark offstage as well. And despite Chark's position that the women who were attracted to her male presentation were ignorant of her assigned sex, this may be simply a convenient trope to deflect the accusation of being an improper object of desire. Chark was not the only female actor of the time who cross-dressed offstage, on occasion as well as on. In Chark's own writing, we may be seeing some of the careful negotiation of how such behavior was understood and made, if not entirely acceptable, then at least not directly challenging to heterosexual norms. In the next half dozen years after her debut, Charlotte's professional life was tumultuous. Her father sold his interest in the Drury Lane Theater, and without that connection, Charlotte's somewhat boisterous personal life and tendency to quarrel with theater managers made it difficult for her to find steady work. Her estranged husband fled debts by leaving the country and died shortly after. So, at age 24, Charlotte Chark was a widow, a single mother, and a largely unemployed actor. It was also around this time that Chark began to adopt a male presentation regularly off the stage as well as on stage. In her autobiography, which, it should be noted, was written and published largely to raise money and so may be suspected of playing to public tastes and opinions to some extent, Chark suggests that her transmasculine interests began at an early age. She was given an education such indeed as might have been sufficient for a son instead of a daughter and suggested that she disdained needlework. She recounts dressing up to mimic her father at age four, putting on his breeches, waistcoat, wig, and hat, which was taken as an amusing entertainment by her family. As noted before, she recounts her love for masculine-coded pursuits such as horses, hunting, and medicine. These broad interests, and her willingness to take up occupations normally restricted to men, served her in good stead when acting roles dried up when she left the Drury Lane Theater. 
After a brief stint running a traveling puppet theater, sold to pay off medical bills, she was reduced to begging for donations from friends and was imprisoned for debt, her bail being paid, according to her autobiography, by a consortium of coffeehouse keepers and prostitutes from the Covent Garden neighborhood that was theater central in London. The circumstances of her arrest, as recounted in her autobiography, provide a vivid example of her gender crossing. She explains that her accuser identified her by dint of a very handsome laced hat I had on, being then, for some substantial reasons, un cavalier, which was so well described the bailiff had no great trouble in finding me. Un cavalier, that is, as a cavalier, was an expression for cross-dressing women at the time. Chark immediately set to the complicated business of finding someone willing to stand as bail, but was stymied by the need to also cover the original debt. I had not been there half an hour before I was surrounded with all the ladies who kept coffee houses in and about the garden, each offering money for my ransom, but nothing then could be done without the debt and costs, which, though there was, I believe, about a dozen or fourteen ladies present, they were not able to raise. As far as their finances extended, they made an offer of him, and would have given notes jointly or separately for the relief of poor Sir Charles, as they were pleased to style me. There were many more economic opportunities for a man than a woman, and Chark's interest in cross-dressing became something of a profession at several periods in her life, taking up the identity of Sir Charles Brown, which gave him access to a succession of jobs he could not have had as a woman. Pastry cook, sausage maker, farmer, grocer, and even valet to the Earl of Anglesey. Chark recounts close brushes with romantic entanglements as Mr. Brown, though, in the autobiography, presenting them as amusing and embarrassing misconstruals. Here is one such episode. Notwithstanding my distresses, the want of clothes was not amongst the number. I appeared as Mr. Brown, in a very genteel manner, and, not making the least discovery of my sex by my behavior, ever endeavoring to keep up to the well-bred gentleman, I became, as I may most properly term it, the unhappy object of love in a young lady, whose fortune was beyond all earthly power to deprive her of, had it been possible for me to have been what she designed me, nothing less than her husband. She was an orphan heiress, and under age, but so near it that at the expiration of eight months her guardian resigned his trust, and I might have been at once possessed of the lady and forty thousand pounds in the Bank of England, besides effects in the Indies, that were worth about twenty thousand more. The matter went further than Chark was willing to risk, and, having been maneuvered into a private conversation with the lady, with much difficulty I mustered up courage sufficient to open a discourse, by which I began to make a discovery of my name and family, which struck the poor creature into astonishment. But how much greater was her surprise when I positively assured her that I was actually the youngest daughter of Mr. Sibber, and not the person she conceived me. She was absolutely struck speechless for some little time, but when she regained the power of utterance, entreated me not to urge a falsehood of that nature, which she looked upon only as an evasion, occasioned, she supposed, through a dislike of her person adding that her maid had plainly told her I was no stranger to her miserable fate, as she was pleased to term it, and indeed, as I really thought it. I still insisted on the truth of my assertion, and desired her to consider whether twas likely an indigent young fellow might must not have thought it an unbounded happiness to possess at once so agreeable a lady and immense a fortune, both which many a nobleman in this kingdom would have thought it worthwhile to take pains to achieve." Chark may well have been playing up the woman's interest and confidence that Mr. Brown was an acceptable prospective suitor. 
It's something of a trope in gender-crossing narratives of this era for the transmasculine figure to be depicted as quite attractive to women while disclaiming anything more than a hypothetical desire on his side. On another occasion, Mr. Brown approached a woman who had known Charlotte as a child and was aware of his dual identity for assistance in finding work. The woman herself knew who I was, but her husband was an entire stranger, to whom she introduced me as a young gentleman of a decayed fortune, and, after apologizing for half an hour, proposed to her spouse to get me the waiter's place, which was just vacant at one Mrs. Doors, who formerly kept the king's head at Marylebone. Brown gave such good service in this job, and was so personable, that Mrs. Dorr let it be known, through a maidservant, that she would welcome a romantic advance from her new employee. Mr. Brown returned the polite disclaimer that he had no intention of remarrying to avoid the risk of giving his daughter a stepmother. Much of Chark's financial difficulties were compounded by the need to support a child. But yet further complications arose. In the interim, somebody happened to come who hinted that I was a woman, upon which Madame, to my great surprise, attacked me with insolently presuming to say she was in love with me, which I assured her I never had the least conception of. No, truly, I believe, said she, I should hardly be enamored with one of my own sex, upon which I burst into a laugh and took the liberty to ask her if she understood what she said. This threw the offended fair into an absolute rage, and our controversy lasted for some time. But in the end, I brought in vindication of my own innocence, the maid to disgrace, who had uncalled for trumped up so ridiculous a story. Mrs. Dorr still remained incredulous in regard to my being a female, and though she afterwards paid me a visit with my worthy friend at my house in Drury Lane, who brought my unsuccessful letter back from my father, she was not to be convinced. I happened that day to be in the male habit on account of playing a part for a poor man, and obliged to find my own clothes. She told me she wished she had known me better when I lived with her. She would on no terms have parted with her man Charles. Mr. Brown's repeating insistence that he had no romantic interest in the women who were attracted to him must be considered in the context of publication. This was an autobiography being created to explain and redeem Chark's career and reputation. Romantic adventures involving the sort of mistaken identity that also featured in comic drama on the stage would further this goal. Admissions of what could only be perceived as unnatural desire would not have benefited Chark's purpose. During this period, Chark sometimes had stints with acting companies, either in London or on the road. She wrote and produced plays of her own and worked as a puppeteer and prompter. Sometimes Chark worked as Charles Brown, sometimes as Charlotte Chark. And there is some evidence that even as Brown, Chark might be perceived as a cross-dressing woman rather than as a man. On other occasions, Chark admits to using the Mr. Brown alias to dodge creditors she had gathered as Charlotte Chark. A common theme of gender-crossing narratives is the advantage to the transmasculine figure of having his gender identity confirmed by the presence of a female partner. For an extended period during Charles Brown's itinerant career, he was accompanied by a woman identified in the autobiography only as Mrs. Brown. The chronology of the narrative is uncertain enough that it isn't clear whether Charles Brown took his name from that of Mrs. Brown, or whether the woman referred to as Mrs. Brown took her name from Charles. And if so, it isn't clear that Mrs. Brown was using that name in context when accompanying Charlotte Chark. Chark had been acting under both names at various times when Mrs. Brown makes her first appearance by name. But it's clear that the existence of 
Mr. and Mrs. Brown, presenting as a married couple, was not purely a fiction in support of Charles Brown's existence. The two were part of a touring company of actors, and we have our first clear discussion of Mrs. Brown while they are in Gloucestershire. In introducing her, Chark notes, I happened to be taken violently ill with a nervous fever and lowness of spirits that continued upon me for upwards of three years before I was able to get the better of it. She is assisted in various ways by my friend, the good-natured gentlewoman, to whom I am most infinitely and sincerely obliged for her tender care in nursing me in three years' illness without repining at her fatigue, which was uninterrupted and naturally fixes on me a lasting grateful sense of the favor. We hear of several adventures the two experienced while traveling together as Mr. and Mrs. Brown, barely escaping being defrauded by some thieves who befriended them, Mr. Brown's hapless venture into setting up as a pastry chef and farmer in Chepstow. Mrs. Brown rescued them from that debacle by means of a convenient legacy from an aunt in Oxfordshire. That stopgap, too, soon ran out, and Mr. Brown lamented, The winter growing fast upon us, we had no prospect before us but of dying by inches with cold and hunger, and what aggravated my own distress was having unfortunately drawn in my friend to be a melancholy partaker of my sufferings. This reflection naturally roused me into an honorable spirit of resolution not to let her perish through my unhappy and mistaken conduct, which I meant all for the best, though it unfortunately proved otherwise. The support was not all one-sided, and when Mr. Brown comes into a minor windfall, he records that he chose to consign it all to the use of one to whom I should have thought on this occasion, if every shilling had been a guinea, I had made but a reasonable acknowledgement, after having immersed her in difficulties which nothing but real friendship and a tender regard to my health, which, through repeated grievances, was much impaired, could have made her blindly inconsistent with her own interest to give into and so patiently endure. But only a couple pages later, Mr. Brown was obliged to strip my friend of the only decent gown she had and pledged it to pay a debt. Mrs. Brown slips out of the narrative at that point, and the story shifts to a discussion of Chark's now-married daughter and the tribulations of another acting troupe they appear to be collectively involved in, with Chark once more going through the world as a woman. It is probably not possible to be certain of how Chark viewed her endeavors as Mr. Brown. Now returned to the stage as Charlotte Chark, she recounts the following. Before I conclude the account of my bath expedition, I cannot avoid taking notice of a malicious aspersion thrown and fixed on me as a reason for leaving it, which was that I designed to forsake my sex again, and that I positively was seen in the street in breeches. This I solemnly avow to be an impertinent falsehood, which was brought to London and spread itself much to my disadvantage in my own family, where I was informed it was delivered to them as a reality by an actress that came to town soon after I quitted Bath. I guess at the person, but as I know her to be half mad, must neither wonder nor be angry at her folly. Yet, as she has sometimes reason sufficient to distinguish between truth and falsehood, I'm surprised she should meanly have recourse to the latter, to make me appear ridiculous, who never gave her the least provocation to do me so apparent an injury. No, Chark says, the reason she left Bath at that point was not because she had been seen cross-dressing off the stage, but because she was disgusted with the low quality of the actor she was expected to work beside. If the woman referred to as my friend, is the same as Mrs. Brown, which appears to be the case, then they were still together at that point. 
As Chark explains that when the acting company at Bath dissolved, my friend and I went with another manager and continued touring, though the friend reproaches Chark for abandoning what had apparently been a good gig in Bath. At this point in her life, Chark returned to London and decided to open an oratorical academy to train actors and to focus on writing, including the autobiography that provides many of the more sensational details of her life. And although this final portion of her autobiography has several references to my friends, there is no mention of my friend that can clearly be connected with her references to Mrs. Brown using that term. I've spent so much time quoting the passages involving Mrs. Brown because they are the most strongly suggestive that Charlotte Shark, or Charles Brown, or both, had a long-term, mutually supportive, and emotionally committed relationship with a woman, and that they presented themselves, at least on some occasions, as a married couple, and that Mrs. Brown clearly was familiar with the entirety of Shark's life and identities. Was this relationship specifically associated with Charles Brown's masculine identity? Or were the two facets of Chark's life independent of each other? Some historians have offered a number of events in support of interpreting Chark as heterosexual and a situational crossdresser, including her marriage to a man and a lack of evidence that she shared a bed with Mrs. Brown. But there's a clear double standard here. If a man and woman engaged in the relationship depicted in Chark's autobiography, few would raise doubts that it was a romantic and sexual one. Charlotte Chark returned to London and gave up the life of a traveling actor in 1754 when she was 41 years of age. But poverty and a lifetime of medical problems had taken their toll, and she died of an illness only six years later. With all the questions of accuracy that her autobiography raises, we can be sure that without it we would know far less of the details of her life. And her life was packed full of the sort of queer details that are so often silently erased from history. We're lucky to know her. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Lesbian Historic Motif podcast. See the show notes for links to people and topics. Most shows will have a transcript linked as well. If you have a book announcement, a topic suggestion, or might like to appear on the show, please drop me an email. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it and subscribe on your favorite podcast app and consider supporting our Patreon 